Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Thomas Malaby, Professor and Chair of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. We talked to Thomas about what is a game and how a well-designed one balances constraints and unpredictabilities. We talk about what relationships people build in and around games and how it often outstrips the designer's expectations of them. We talk about his experience with Linden Lab and how Second Life was designed not as a game but as a platform for game making. We talk about player governance as a legitimate component of an online space, the connection between trust, ethics and governance and why it's necessary for game companies to participate in digital public spaces. We talk about identity and building inclusive avatars and the asymmetry between players and game makers. Lastly, we talk about chance, patterns and open-endedness in games. We hope you enjoy it. Okay, first off, um, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Um, the first question is pretty much our one that we ask every time, and that is, um, well, how do you define anthropology? How do I define anthropology? That's a, that's a loaded question, I think, for any academic, but uh, at least for me, as I think about it, I think of anthropology as the discipline that takes on uh, the understanding of the human condition for all times, past and present. That means it's a very holistic discipline as academic disciplines go, uh, casting a very, very, very wide net methodologically and in terms of the questions it takes on in order to expand our understanding of the human experience. How did you find your way into anthropology? Uh, it's, it was interesting to, to see that you wanted to ask me about that. Um, I found my way into anthropology uh, via a bit of an unusual route. I, I arrived at my undergraduate uh, college, at Harvard College, uh, very intent on majoring in music, um, specifically composition and conducting, uh, partly because my father said he wouldn't pay for me to go there if I were to major in music. So, of course, he guaranteed that I would do precisely that. Uh, and I, I enjoyed that. I really did. But uh, within a couple of years, I realized that uh, the study of music, especially music history, at least there at the time, kept raising more questions for me than it was giving me uh, satisfactory answers, especially about social context, the context in which pieces like Beethoven's Third Symphony were written. So around my sophomore year, I started to feel like I was missing something uh, and had become very curious about how we we're to understand the social context in which we live. And I had a bunch of, uh, of friends and uh, roommate, actually a roommate or two roommates who were anthropology majors uh, studying social anthropology, as they call it there. And uh, I started taking classes in social anthropology and uh, became very quickly interested in, in learning more. So that's how I, I came to anthropology as a field. And very early on, I got interested in the study of ritual and performance, which is something anthropology does extremely well, I'll say, uh, the way we've come to understand 
uh, ritual and its structure uh, as a sponsored event, the relationship of ritual to institutions. Uh, it's just something we're good at. And I was interested in that for some time, but I had grown up playing games all of the time. My father and my grandfather were both very accomplished pool players, actually. And we used to play cards quite a bit as well in, in my house. Add on to that the fact that my father was an engineer at IBM, uh, an inventor for IBM, actually. And I suppose it was inevitable that my attention would turn uh, first to games, uh, which is what my PhD research was on, uh, not technology specifically, but uh, games and gambling in Greece, and then eventually bringing all those things together to study games and technology in the work that I've done more recently. And tell us a bit more about the work that you're doing recently. Well, I... I came out of the work, uh, my first work on, on games, very interested in what games can tell us about human beings confront the unpredictable quality of their lives. Uh, as human beings, we all are in very practical ways. We're aware of how indeterminate our experience is. Uh, we're aware uh, of how things just happen in, in our lives. And that's something that we find very uh, often very troubling, but uh, we also look to that indeterminacy for opportunity, um, and it becomes culturally charged in various ways with powerful meanings. So uh, that work on games in Greece led me to want to look more deeply into how people relate to the indeterminate quality of their lives through games. And I remember I was, uh, I started to think about uh, computer games and online games. I've always been a gamer. Uh, we had a PC very, very early in my household with my father working, working for IBM. I used to play these little ASCII character Star Trek games on my computer way back in the early 80s. And, uh, and I remember I, was, I happened to be looking at my computer in the early 2000s and seeing the Google homepage. And uh, they, at that time, I think they still have it. They had two buttons. This very, this famously sparse homepage for Google. And uh, the first button was the search, and then the second button was this I'm feeling lucky button, uh, which I got, I, I, I noticed it. I mean, I'd been writing about luck in Greece in that early work, and I started to wonder, what is this relationship between these algorithms that are running uh, behind the scenes often in computer games that we play, networked games that we play, but also just throughout all of the technical media uh, technologically uh, saturated communication modes that we use. What what ideas about luck are in there? What ideas about chance are in there? Uh, so that's when I started thinking about the project that led me to Linden Lab in San Francisco. Uh, I applied to the National Science Foundation to do research on the making of an online game, uh, and specifically to ask the question of what kinds of cultural values, what kinds of ethics were being written into, uh, inscribed into the code, that is to say the architecture of these online spaces. I wasn't even really sure where I would do that work, uh, but I submitted that proposal and it got funded. And very shortly thereafter, I met many of the principals at Linden Lab at the time, Philip Rosedale, Corey Andreka, um, and, uh, and I just wanted to follow up on that. They were happy to have me join them. So I spent the next year and a half traveling to San Francisco every month to observe how they did their work 
and uh, what kinds of cultural values, what kinds of ethics were in play within their company. And it was certainly more than one set of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to what extent they made their way into their uh, their creation, Second Life, either intentionally or unintentionally. Second Life wasn't a game uh, in kind of technical terms, uh, although I thought it was interesting walking around Linden Lab that you would see on many people's little spaces, it was kind of an open office environment. Many of them had uh, a eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper pinned to somewhere around their desk that had the word in all capitals, GAME, and then over it was a red strike-through symbol. Uh, they were very invested in the idea that Second Life wasn't a game. Uh, I thought that was very interesting, uh, especially because it certainly used many, many game design techniques. And they were well aware that it did. They, they were quite, many of them, a certain subset of them in particular, were very interested in Second Life being a platform for game making. But what I found to be interesting was how a company could leverage a lot of computer game design techniques in order to uh, seek to create a very rich and vibrant mm. social world. How would you define a game, Thomas, and why do you think they didn't define theirs as one? Well, I think a game is a, is a, is a notoriously fraught uh, thing to define, and I think the reason for that is uh, we are very, many people are very, very invested in the idea of what a game is um, and, and what isn't a game. Um, in broader Western culture, if we can label it at that level, uh, there are a whole bunch of associations we've inherited about games as safe and set apart from everyday life, is about producing pleasurable experiences. And, and those are a, a set of ideas and assumptions about games that are kind of lay assumptions about games, but they don't, they don't really do much for us academically when we want to look at games as a cultural form, as I call it. So I, I, I made reference to ritual in our study of ritual. We're really good at studying ritual. We're also very good at studying bureaucracy. And when we think about those things, ritual and bureaucracy, and we call them cultural forms, what we learn when we uh, consider how anthropology has sought to understand those cultural forms is that they are these types of organization and types of uh, events that human institutions make use of in order to accomplish certain kinds of objectives and pursue certain kinds of projects. Uh, ritual and bureaucracy are very effective for mobilizing resources, for organizing behavior, for defining roles, for uh, a whole bunch of things. Uh, and in the mix in there are things like meaning and efficiency and a whole bunch of different things that institutions can get interested in. So my approach to games follows on that to say, well, games are a third cultural form that are deployed, they're used by institutions. Sometimes they aren't really used by institutions. Sometimes they're very ad hoc. They're very sort of from the ground up, sort of grassroots. And that's true of ritual too, and maybe even of some types of bureaucratic organization. But what I get very interested in uh, is how games are used. And To that end, I developed a definition of games, which uh, a number of people have found pretty useful. And that definition of games goes something like this. I don't know if I'll be able to quote myself, but uh, a game is a, a domain of contrived indeterminacy that generates interpretable outcomes. Uh, so there's a way in which games are this interesting mix of constraints, uh, ways to kind of govern the space, 
uh, and also different kinds of unpredictability. And I'm just let me say a little bit more about that. When we stop and think about it, games aren't just rules. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking of games as reducible to their rules. But first of all, a lot of games use a, a whole bunch of other kinds of constraints that aren't really rules at all, like the architecture of a baseball stadium, for example, uh, or a soccer field. Um, to call those rules is to turn them into something else. Uh, mm -hmm. So you have things like architectural constraints, rules themselves, but also social conventions. Uh, certain ideas about how what is proper in playing a game. In soccer, there's social conventions when a player is injured that aren't technically in the rules, but which everybody follows. So that's on the what we might say is the constraint side of games. But I think it's also very interesting to look at what makes games indeterminate. And when you look there, you see these different kinds of indeterminacy. You've got things that are kind of what we might call random uh, or technically stochastic is the word, like uh, a well-shuffled deck of cards or a spinner or dice or uh, algorithms operating behind the scenes that are maybe pseudo-random but are random uh, from the point of view of the player. Even things like the weather or horse racing, those are all sort of sources of that kind of indeterminacy. But that's of a different order than the indeterminacy of whether a player of the game will execute what they want to execute correctly or not. Will they make the shot in basketball or not? Mm. Will they make the proper move, uh, move the piece in, in proper fashion on a chessboard or not? Will they track and follow it on a computer game uh, and click on it or not? Uh, that's a different kind of indeterminacy. And then further still, we can think about the indeterminacy of any social game that we have about other players' motives, mm -hmm. other players' intentions, other players' resources. And when we start to look at games that way, it opens up uh, a lot of interesting questions for us in the social sciences about how games are designed uh, to balance those constraints and that unpredictability. After all, a game that's too routinized and too determinative feels very flat to us. It isn't very engaging at all. It can feel very boring. Tic-tac-toe is kind of shallow in its indeterminacy, and only, only children tend to be interested in playing it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then at the other end, you can have games that are just, they're just too chaotic. There doesn't seem to be uh, a very reliable sense in, in the way that your own actions are uh, able to affect the outcomes, not determinatively, but with some reliability. And those games tend to make, just make us feel very frustrated or very anxious. Mm. So in between are well-designed games, and a well-designed games has an enormous power to command our attention and generate meaning. Mm. And those are the things that I uh, think make games so interesting for institutions. The famous example is the 1936 Berlin Olympics. I mean, it's kind of a, uh, an old hackneyed example, but it's a really, really good one. When you look at the Berlin Olympics, here was Nazi Germany, this terrible, terrible regime that wanted legitimacy on the world stage. Political legitimacy is a huge, huge prize for nation states. And they take on the Berlin Olympics, and and the Olympics, after all, are almost the, the preeminent example of, of simul something that is simultaneously bureaucratic, ritualized, and game-filled, right? So the Nazis set about to uh, administer the Olympics uh, better than anyone else has before. Uh, organize the ceremonies and pull off uh, spectacular ceremonies better than anyone has before. And then the third uh, leg of that uh, tripod is to win on the fields of play. And th all three of those combined would be a, a testament 
they felt to their Aryan superiority, as horrific as that is. And that's part of what makes uh, Jesse Owens' achievement at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, where he wins four gold medals in track and field. This is an uh, American, uh, African-American, uh, no less, who does this in this stunning fashion. And that shows how games for a very long time, even though institutions can get very interested in them, because they can, com again, command attention and generate a lot of meaning, they have, for most of human history, I would argue, been rather unruly <laughs> and rather difficult to domesticate. They can generate outcomes that are maybe not what that institution was looking for. They're a risk to put on and to sponsor. Uh, those are the questions that I find very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think with the rise of digital technologies, we're seeing games that are usable by institutions uh, to, in new ways uh, with new kinds of effectiveness. Uh, digital technology uh, allows you to reach uh, a very wide potential uh, audience of players and also spectators. Uh, and you, you see the ability, the manipulability of code, the sophistication of the, of the games that can be produced in the digital context uh, to be immense. In addition, by design, Natasha Dauschul shows how we can design machines or these companies can design machines that are so good at commanding attention of their players that the players will stay on them for hours and hours and hours. I think that is the point we are at with games today is that digital games have become so sophisticated and so good at capturing and holding our attention and generating uh, what feels like meaningful experience, at least, that it's raising new ethical questions about game companies and really all companies involved in technology which deal with user interface uh, and how game games are elements of that. Yeah. You were mentioning earlier at the beginning of the conversation about your work with, um, with um, studying how companies kind of embed cultural norms or bureaucracy into the process of developing games. And you're also mentioning about rituals. So I was wondering, when they design or build these games, do you feel like there's a more of a conscious attempt to design it as a ritual, given the power that a ritual has to kind of embed you in it um, from beginning to end? Well, I think that we see both those things in play. I think that ritual, uh, designing a ritual experience is always tough. Rituals arise kind of, uh, for a particular generation in a particular community, mm -hmm. they arise almost naturally from a meaningful, even sometimes accidental moment that just seems to resonate and, and uh, itself relate very powerfully to a sense of belonging for that group. Mm -hmm. These are ideas that come from the brilliant uh, Emile Durkheim at the end of the mm -hmm. 19th century. Really notice this. So, so rituals. If you set out, like for example, if you're if you're a company and you want to do team building exercises for uh, an incoming group of employees, that's a pretty fraught enterprise. It's difficult to mm -hmm. uh, to create rituals that that are um, going to be very effective out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But yet, at the same time, we can observe how institutions that have been around a long time can be very good at inventing or maintaining or tweaking or sustaining rituals. Um, the Invention of Tradition, a famous book by the historians Hobsbawm and Ranger, uh, charts so many examples of this. Uh, famously under Queen Victoria, the British Empire, 
uses her as a focal point for a whole elaboration of ritual intended to foster a kind of global sense of belonging across the British Empire. But game companies today, if they set about and they want to make a ritual happen, uh, I, I'm not sure that I know many of them uh, are, are thinking about it in those terms. I think what makes games appealing is that uh, they so obviously also generate attention and generate meaning, uh, but they do tend to be less about belonging. Rituals are about belonging, about feeling part of a group. Uh, games for the, for a team, games can generate that kind of feeling. And, and anthropologists, my my colleagues in biological anthropology, will talk about the generation of oxytocin and other kinds of uh, of trust uh, hormones with that. Uh, but but games games are a little different. Games have differential performances in them, and uh, between the winners and the losers, uh, it can be a little harder to uh, foster necessarily the, the feeling that ritual as a whole fosters. Mm. So that may be part of the reason why, for companies, games can be a challenge. Yeah. Instead, I think what we've seen is that, and, and this was true um, well, it's true of, of a number of companies, but instead, I, I think what we see is games looking to use the attention that they can gain through games uh, so that work can be done. Uh, work can be done more cheaply than they might do it themselves. A uh, very obvious example, although it's it's no longer running, is the Google Image Labeler game. Back 10 years ago, I suppose now, when Google had all of these images and they weren't text searchable, they created a game where users could just log in and play this game against other people and you would always be paired with someone and you were incented in the game to come up with labels for the images you saw that would match with your partner. Mm -hmm. That's a way to try and get a bunch of images labeled very, very quickly and there were leaderboards and all the rest, right? Well, you know, who's getting paid for that work? It would have mm -hmm. been massively expensive for Google to pay themselves the money to get all of those image archives labeled. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that I think companies can't have uh, an ethical relationship to their users and their players using games, but I do think that games tend to invite uh, a kind of uh, workaround for things that would be quite expensive if people were paid for the labor they do while playing, and instead it becomes all too easy to get work done that players uh, maybe even unknowingly are doing for companies through through the games they play. Yeah. And what kind of the relationships that you've observed of people actually building with those games? How, how, do, they, how do they perform um, the act of playing and, and what type of relationship does that lead to? Mm, I, I, this is one of the most interesting facets of games in a digitally networked context is that the relationships that people build in and around games often far outstrip the designer's expectations of them. You can look at something like World of Warcraft, hmm. where the designers imagine the gameplay to be of a certain kind, with a certain kind of goal. They're, they're imagining a certain kind of player as their player. And this often happens in the designing of technology. Getting back to the issue of how ethics get written into technologies, it's almost... It, surely it would be impossible for any given company not to write into what it's producing its own picture of the human. Mm. And that's what it tends to do. Uh, so for Linden Lab, there was a, a 
particular and, and to me historically kind of traceable set of ideas about what people are all about that got written into that software. And that's I spent a fair amount of time in the book spending, spelling that out. For World of Warcraft and Blizzard, something similar happened in their original making of the game. They're picturing a certain kind of player who has uh, ambitious endgame rating as one of their goals uh, following on this model of EverQuest and Ultima Online. But all the while, in World of Warcraft, players are doing other things that uh, surprise Blizzard. They're, they're doing things that, that they find meaningful that the companies themselves didn't necessarily expect. And that, that also was, of course, true for Linden Lab and Second Life. Hmm. Uh, over and over and over again, users um, from certain uh, communities, uh, disability communities and, and other communities found in Second Life things that the company would never have imagined. It was fascinating to be on the scene while a lot of that learning was taking place, where Linden Lab was realizing that what they had produced was open-ended enough that mm. people find uses and build relationships within it that Linden Lab didn't expect. So, for example, there was a group of uh, cerebral palsy sufferers who found in Second Life this incredible environment where they could dance and they could fly and they could move about. Uh, and at the same time, there was a, a group of uh, people with Asperger's syndrome who found Second Life to be uh, compelling for almost an entirely different set of reasons. The way uh, it, it had a whole bunch of technical creation tools within it and an ability to create a relatively private space on an island within it. So those kinds of relationships that get built through technology are always surprising the companies mm -hmm. that make them. Uh, and I think that's one of the primary challenges for any of those companies. Second Life uh, created so many challenges for Linden Lab. Linden Lab seemed, and I do spend a fair amount of time talking about this in the book, they were, they were quite aware that Second Life could surprise them tomorrow and dramatically. And they were looking very keenly for ways of managing their company, setting up a, a management structure for decision making and prioritizing that would put them in a position to be flexible enough to respond to whatever this mass of users would do in its kind of emergent and complicated fashion the next day. And that was a very, very difficult challenge. So how was the, the, the platform developed after that kind of understanding? Did they incorporate some of that learning into the way forward? Yes. Well, most dramatically, and this is, of course, now eight, nine years ago, but mm. they saw, uh, and this is such a perfect example, they saw that users were approaching Second Life to make relationships. Mm. And even that itself wasn't exactly at the foundations of how Linden Lab imagined its users. It imagined its users in a very individuated fashion, that people would come into Second Life, have access to these content creation tools, would have the intellectual property rights to what they would make, and they would set about to make things. And the only extent that, to which they were social in that picture was that they would want to share what they made with others. Now, that's a very particular and, to a cultural anthropologist, rather peculiarly limited picture mm. of what human beings are all about. Yeah. And to their surprise, human beings were doing a bunch of other things, and they were relating to each other. They were uh, creating support groups for things like uh, breast cancer survivors and, and a whole bunch of other things, and those two groups I mentioned before, and on and on and on. What is more, they were businesses were popping up, and those businesses were not just one person creating a product. 
they were a whole group of people that were trying to organize themselves and have hierarchies and have different permissions and have different roles. So Linden Lab responded to that by redoing and in fact making real uh, social tools for the first time. Uh, complicated organizational tools, uh, management tools relative to other people uh, so that groups could be created, uh, new kinds of group tools. That that was a, a perfect example of this kind of thing. Mm. I, I can would... give you another, another example if you're interested. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so uh, one of the most fascinating game design companies that is out there and has been for quite some years now is CCP. And CCP Games, which is located in Iceland, makes EVE Online. And EVE Online is uh, an incredible, uh, multi massively multiplayer online game set in uh, space. It's this single environment, unlike World of Warcraft, for example, which has thousands of different iterations of its world across many, many servers. EVE Online has this one gigantic environment with thousands and thousands and thousands of players in it. And uh, those players, uh, and CCP has sought to make this possible, uh, they are organized into corporations, they are mining planets, they are making in-game currency, and CCP has supported the fact that that currency also has value outside of the game. And this is the kind of thing we see often. We see it in Second Life and we see it in a number of other online worlds. Well, something that happened quite some years ago now was uh, a scandal involving insider knowledge at CCP and uh, the value of a lot of in-game currency and, uh, and assets. And CCP's response to that scandal, which was uh, an enormous hit to their uh, legitimacy amongst their player base and generated enormous concerns about trust, was fascinating because CCP opened itself up to player audit. They created uh, the Council of Interstellar Management, as they called it, and it was a way for players to elect representatives who would have, would have the right to observe and have some oversight over how CCP conducted its business with EM Online. Yeah. That's, that's a fascinating example. An American company would almost never expect to do anything like that. It would uh, run so far against what tend to be overriding values of uh ownership rights, property rights, a uh, company like Blizzard, uh, that's a very far distance from what we tend to see from Blizzard, yeah. that acknowledgement of governance and player governance as a legitimate mm -hmm. component of an online space. Yeah, it, it made me think actually of a question that I wanted to ask before you give this example, but this example I think summarizes perfectly, which is the connection between the way social games are being built and managed and how a nation state is, is being built and governed. Yes. Um, yes. And what is the role of the corporation with those kind of social communities that they kind of replicate at a scale um, human communities, right? And yes. then how do you move forward with this advancing human communities? How do you build an a social infrastructure of decision-making, of development? That, and how does that link to the way a capitalistic system normally works, <laughs> right? It's exactly right. Mm. These, are, these are old now, I guess we could say, and uh, absolutely foundational questions to yeah. virtual worlds. Going back to Julian DeBell's wonderful book, My Tiny Life, uh, where he looks at a text-based space called Lambda Moo, uh, and he, 
he identifies that the most interesting and uh, challenging questions that these spaces raise are questions of governance, mm. uh, governance and and uh, and ethics. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, we we are seeing these spaces that are controlled by private entities, but in them people are making things and they're making relationships. Yeah. They are exerting effort, and that effort. Uh, creates durable things and durable relationships and players feel a sense of investment in that. They feel a sense of ownership in that. They feel that that generates political, what we might call political rights for them mm. over that. Mm. Uh, and that's a very, very hard uh, nut to crack if the companies have built their whole business model upon uh, continued private control and yeah. profit of yeah. what the players do in those spaces. It's a very, very hard hard uh, thing to resolve. I think from my point of view, what I found to be uh, extremely important going forward, the more that online spaces are, broadly speaking, civic spaces, and I don't just mean games, I mean places like Facebook and Instagram and other places like that, the more they are spaces for civil civil life, uh, the more there becomes a, a pressure to incorporate certain kinds of public participation in how they are governed. Uh, and I think that that's going to be a conversation that's going to be coming uh, and not, and it, it may already be here with yeah. what is happening yeah. at Facebook, certainly. And I think you can, you can definitely see it in the heightened degree of mistrust that, that people have engaging with these spaces as consumers, yes, right? And I think... We had this beautiful um, conversation with uh, with Katy Baxter from Salesforce about ethics and AI um, a few um, weeks back, and and we ended up discussing actually about the connection between loyalty, trust, and ethics. Right. And the fact right. that you know more and more consumers are understanding that places like Facebook or um, Google, um, Salesforce, like these social spaces, they have a responsible, an ethical responsibility to be more than just that product. And if they feel that this is not the case, then the, the, the trust level and the loyalty starts going down and and then they start demonizing these places. Right. Um, I, I completely agree. In the United States in particular, we've had in the political climate such what I would call an extreme, such an extreme emphasis on private rights, uh, that our faith in public institutions had, has been on the wane for quite some time. Uh, the, and part of that has been an active effort, I would say, to delegitimize public institutions. Uh, and as a result, the whole question of where is our information, our personal information, safest? If, mm-hmm. if we grant that it's not, it's not going to be uh, perfectly uh, kept to each our own, but instead someone's going to have access to it. Some institution is going to have access to it. Which institution do you trust more? I think it's very revealing to ask that question because you, not too long ago, I feel, saw in the public conversation in the United States a relatively large portion of of the population much more comfortable with private institutions owning their personal data than public institutions, which was an index of the the way in which public institutions have been so delegitimized. But I think that's changing. Mm -hmm. I think the idea that, well, 
if we're going to have to have some institution that has our personal data, maybe we prefer that to be a public one so that there's some accountability. I think that's creeping back onto the scene in the public discourse in the United States. I think other parts of the world, especially Europe, are already ahead of the United States on that game. Yeah. And I, I actually kind of get got the feeling that when I watched Mark Zuckerberg's deposition, because it felt much more like it really felt like a kind of a power play um, mm -hmm. between and, and legitimacy between um, governmental institutions and corporate actors. So they were basically, for me, like I was watching that and thinking they're just uh, right now, they're just placeholders in this, yeah. in this desire to legitimize this form of power over the other form of power in front of their audience. Right. Right. Um, and I, I think that uh, going forward, game design companies, uh, if, if they want to take a lesson from this, they will want to consider how they could participate in digital public spaces. After all, we have architecture firms, for example, and I think they're a wonderful example, that have for hundreds of years in modern democracies been involved in the production of uh, public spaces with public participation and public oversight and public review. Uh, and those are private companies that are part of that process. Mm. Uh, I don't see how we couldn't consider our online spaces to be uh, governable and producible even yeah. by something similar to that. Yeah. I have a question regarding the topic of identity. And I think especially we've had another, we have, we've had another speaker a few weeks back speak to, um, to gamers um, and um, cultural and ethnic identity. Um, and I wanted to ask you, because especially with these games that are like international, right? Like the world of Warcraft, you are, you can play it. I can be from wherever corner of the world, get the game and, and enter that space and play as a, as one of the avatars that they've designed. But how do you, how do you engage with those avatars and also how do you produce them keeping in account that complex diversity of, you know, um, cultural identities of those people that actually play them. And, you know, I get the feeling that on the, the player side, there's much more diversity that, that is on the, um, on the game side. Yeah, absolutely. I think any graphically intense avatar-based online game will make very obvious the challenges and the asymmetry that exists between players and the makers of these games. You look at something like World of Warcraft, or even better in a way, their more recent product of Overwatch, mm. and you see a company uh, trying to think ahead in a way, uh, as they should if they want to have a successful product. I mean, there are, I don't want to paint capitalism as, <laughs> as something that, that can't, can't uh, try to be progressive in certain respects, right? So here you have an incentive on Blizzard's part to produce a game where players will be playing avatars with which they will identify to some mm -hmm. extent and making a very conscious decision to uh, have some degree of gender balance, some multiplicity of bodily forms uh, and ethnicities and uh, even sexual orientation. Um, now, I'm sure from, from one point of view or, or another, it, it can look like pandering or it could look uh, clumsy, uh, but nonetheless, these are games that reflect something very different than what we saw 
five or ten years ago when uh, the same company uh, rather carelessly to my mind had uh, a community and a race in World of Warcraft just to pick one uh, of the trolls mm-hmm. that were um, who all spoke with Jamaican accents and a whole bunch <laughs> of other you know or, or you know it's sort of like what we saw with with some of the the Star Wars prequels yeah, right yeah. so uh, th- that there's an education going on there um, the privilege to be in a position to produce these games uh, carries with it the ethical uh, imperative to uh, consider your own position and the, the things that you might be blind to. And if, if I were to define culture as a cultural anthropologist, it would be to say it's everything that goes without saying, right? It's everything that's implicit in how we act and, ex- and understand the world, all of our sh- the expectations we imagine to be shared. Uh, and that, that can do a lot of damage when not confronted and when there isn't uh, a dialogue in place about the kinds of exclusions that can arise from uh, one particular cultural point of view having um, many more resources and much more privilege from which to design, for example, online games. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, Thomas, and what's next for you? What type of wonderful work are you working on now? Because we're going to so, link all your past work, um, which you have also mentioned. But I know that in the in this space, like what you're working now, it's only going to get published somewhere in the future. So we'd love to know more about that. Well, it's generous of you to ask. I've been involved in a lot of administrative work here uh, over the last seven years. I've been chair of the department. And in Wisconsin, we've had a lot of challenges uh, at our public university system. But I'm very glad to say I'm stepping down as chair within a matter of a few months, and I have a fellowship at our Humanities Center here, which is the Center for 21st Century Studies, as well as a sabbatical next spring. And I've started work with an English professor here named Stuart Malthrop, who's just wonderful, and a number of PhD students, some other interested people. We have this Digital Cultures Collaboratory as part of the Humanities Center. And we have a Twitch channel. It's uh, UWM Serious Play. And on it, we are uh, exploring together a number of these questions about ethics and game design. For me personally, and there's a lot of different projects that will go on with the different participants, but I know that going forward, I want to look more deeply at the question of masculinity Mm -hmm. in the post-war United States era and its relationship to games. There's a wonderful book by Carly Kokurik, called Coin Operated Americans, Rebooting Boyhood at the Video Game Arcade. And uh, she does terrific work looking at how the video game arcade of the 70s and 80s was somehow involved in a much broader transformation of what being a man in the United States is since World War II. So uh, for me, that will inform further a number of things I've been interested in for some time, uh, why we have the kinds of digital architectures we have with the ethics in them that we have, why games look the way they do, uh, to what ends are they used, and what does that have to tell us about the state of masculinity in the United States? I think it's the kind of thing that we could stand to learn a lot more about. Sounds great. Um, Yeah, I think our time is almost up, right? We are. <laughs> it's been it's been wonderful talking to you, and I've ha- I have so many questions in my head that I kind of have to scratch out. Um, 
uh, because of time. Um, but I really sure. wanted to ask you more about you were you were talking earlier about about chance and games. Yes. And I and I found that that's fascinating. Um, especially I, I remember like there's a lot of like rituals that people create to kind of make chance kind of happen. Mm, Do you know? Yes. Um, it, and divination it, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, like with sports, wearing a particular type of item or in um, with gambling, with luck, with all of these kind of things. Um, and I was wondering if not having predefined um, rules or allowing for that chance to have a bigger role than it has um, is, is getting people to be more engaged or less engaged in games. Well, right. I, there's a, a great article that was written now my goodness, 47 years ago or so, called An Exploratory Model of Play. And it was written by the, the famous theorist of flow that many people know, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and an anthropologist named Stith Bennett. And they published this piece in American Anthropologist, and they were talking about what it means to be playful and the relationship of that to chance. Mm. I think that they are right when they say that we are, as human beings, uh, we are ready to notice pattern, uh, but all the more we're ready to notice patterns that are not perfectly determined, nor completely chaotic. Mm. This connects with something I said before, but as human beings, we're very, we're almost, it seems, wired to notice patterns and our relationship to them and how the actions we take either influence what happens next or doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I think what chance uh, in games is doing is providing that element of open-endedness that we find extremely compelling. Mm -hmm. uh, anthropologists some have written about things like uh, the way we can stare at a fire or we can uh, stare at clothes tumbling in a dryer or something like that, right? Those are, those are uh, images before us that are contained and patterned, but at the same time, always full of contingency. They're mm -hmm. always full of new, novel combinations. Uh, and something like that is at the heart of the way that games command our attention, in my opinion. I'm not a biolo biological anthropologist. I'm not a neuroanthropologist. I have good friends and colleagues who are, and many of them are interested in these kinds of questions. But I think when we think about chance and some of the difficulty that the academy has had in exploring and writing about chance, I think one of the places we end up in is uh, looking at games and mm -hmm. how games are a culturally sanctioned form in which a contrivance of chance and constraint uh, can be there in a way that we can engage and thereby uh, generate something meaningful, uh, learn how to perform uh, toward mastery of that environment. And those are very powerful, powerful elements for, for human beings. Yeah, that's great. Um, I did a small project some time ago on lotteries. Here. Oh, great. Yeah, which for me was a fascinating space because um, we, in New Zealand, it's a very traditional kind of um, culture. And mm -hmm. um, gambling is seen as something incredibly um, unethical and illegal in society. But on the other hand, the lottery system, which is also, also kind of a form of gambling, it's seen as something really good. Yes. Um, yes. 
this is one of my favorite topics. We could keep talking, I'm sure, for some time. But I, I find it fascinating and will someday hopefully have a chance to write about the way in which uh, chance on one hand in one construction seems the very opposite of justice, mm. right? very opposite of, of fairness, but in another context is the very essence of it, yes. right? So something like the immigration lottery to the United States, uh, that is, under my definition, a game. And mm. I think that's a productive way of looking at it. Uh, what What is going on with this contrived contingency and the outcomes it generates? What makes them legitimate? What problem are they solving? Uh, is this lottery solving? politically, if you will, uh, what is going on when we look at state uh, gambling, for example, and the, the criticisms of it. We've recently had the Supreme Court here uh, pass a decision which will overturn the federal ban on sports betting. Well, that raises a, a whole whole host of questions about the, the nature of gambling as a social phenomenon and whether there's any standing for the public to speak against it. Uh, it's a confrontation of individual choice as against the public good. And that kind of thing is always interesting to follow. Wait, yet. Yeah. I'll have a look at those references that you, you just made. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Thomas. And I'll, I'd love to kind of keep talking about chance because it's also a very uh, favorite topic of mine. <laughs> But oh, sure. um, maybe for another episode. But thank you so much. It's been delightful. Um, I feel like I've just finished a lecture on the topic. <laughs> um, kind of you to say. So yeah, very uh, yeah. Thank you so much for your um, for your contribution and your time. Um, it's been incredibly valuable to us. You're welcome. And if you'd like to do another podcast, another episode on chance, I am I'm at your disposal. That'd be very oh, much fun. Thank you. You know, I'm going to take you up on that. Um, so. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks very much. It was thank, a lot of fun. Thank you, Thomas. Have a nice day. You too. Bye See bye. ya. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.